A rat in a maze is free to go anywhere, as long as it stays inside the maze. Welcome back to Literary Guys. We're wrapping up our discussion of The Handmaid's Tale. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. Blessed be the fruit. May the Lord open. Amen. So uh, we're, we're taking a, a different approach. The last three episodes, we talked about the men of Gilead as looking at literature through a masculine lens. But I think we're going to talk a little bit about the structure of the ants in Gilead today and how they're kind of appropriating some traditionally masculine archetypes in their roles. You mean the aunts? Oof, we are from the same part of the country, sir. You should not be saying aunts. Anyhow, I think that we need to talk about the aunts and we need to also kind of wrap up the novel here. I mean, I know we're in our fourth episode. A lot happens at the end of the book. We should be talking about the salvaging. Yes, that's it. The salvaging, and also about the crazy last chapter of this oh, book. So good, yeah. And there's there's a little bit of uh, Nick in there too. Alfred and Nick kind of enter into some kind of relationship where even by the end, it's unclear who Nick is and what his intentions are. But yeah, I think to me the really interesting meat of this is in the society of Gilead, there are some women who are given more power than some men. Mm-hmm. Aunt Lydia being the one that we know by name, but we see these ants throughout. Uh, there's one at Jezebel's, which we talked about last episode, kind of monitoring the women's bathroom. And these ants are very intriguing to me because I think like every character in this wonderfully constructed universe, I don't think that they say they're doing anything wrong. Correct. I think they believe for the most part in what they're doing. And whether or not they agree with the direction society's taken, they see it as their duty to prepare these fertile women for their new role in Gilead. I think that there is a fascinating undertone to all of this. Like, if you strip away the Gilead society and you strip away pretty much all of the trappings of this horrible world in which the story takes place, there is still a very real problem of fertility in this world. And so for that reason, I think that the aunts have a duty in order to provide for the long-term existence of the human race. And that's the way that many of them have conceptualized this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really seem like they feel like they're protecting these girls, quote-unquote, as they like to say. But man, they do it with such a, to me, unmistakably toxic masculine energy. It's really uncomfortable to watch the way in which we get this mix of sort of like bad Catholic school trope behavior inside of the gym where they are housed at the beginning, essentially a, a high school. And then we have the way in which the aunts are involved later on, being involved with things like childbirth, and it's very clear that once you are a handmaid, you do not travel far from the aunts. Right. I think it says something interesting about society as a whole as we kind of peel back from the novel for a second that I, I wanted your take on. Mm-hmm. There's certainly that notion or that adage, I guess you would say, that to be a woman in today's society, you need to appropriate some masculine qualities to be successful. That seems like an outdated thing to say, but most recently, I think we've seen that with the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the Silicon Valley innovator who created a whole company out of nothing, essentially, and defrauded investors and put countless people at risk. She's someone who actively lowered her own voice, began to dress more masculine, really tried to throw her weight around in a traditionally male-dominated world of Silicon Valley, and was quite successful in doing so. And I'm wondering, you know, what we can talk about, how we can kind of suss that out, because 
surely there are strengths that women have that if incorporated into that kind of higher level workforce atmosphere greatly benefit corporations america certainly we've seen many wonderful examples of that but that we still see women who are trying to take on these traditionally masculine traits that are often toxic what's really going on there what can we take away from that and how can we be better as a society well i think that we as men need to stop putting value in the fact that the masculine alpha male way of being a leader, for Mm -hmm. instance, Mm -hmm. is the only right way. I I think that is step one. Everything else comes after that. But I have to say, like, there is a definite temptation. I feel it myself to take on some of those alpha male kind of traits and to communicate in that fashion and to operate in that way, even though that's not me. I don't think that that is me right. uh, in real life. So I think this really comes down to this really challenging issue of coding, mm-hmm. coded communication, mm-hmm. and that I feel like I do it too, that I can slip in and out of that mindset, that way of operating, that way of phrasing, that way of being more aggressive in the same way that I think a lot of people in different uh, life circumstances have learned in order to have coded ways in which they communicate to those around them. Certainly, this is something which is true and has continued to be true for a very long time inside of the gay community, that I know that I talk differently to Mm. folks who are in a gay party, for instance, that I might be going to, uh, than I would in normal day-to-day life. And I wish that wasn't true, but I also would be lying if I said I didn't do it. No, I... Really interestingly said, and and I have to agree with that on all fronts, even as a straight man, I've noticed that I kind of take on different masculine energies dictated by the situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, least our listeners think that I'm blaming women for appropriating these toxic traits in the masculine world to get ahead. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen how in my previous life in the corporate world, where if I was emotional during a meeting, that was me being passionate. But if a woman Mm -hmm. at the same level as me was being emotional during a meeting, that was an example of weakness. And it it was so apparent how men and women are treated differently, even in a supposedly equal society like we're trying to live in in 2022. I can't begrudge any woman for just kind of giving up the ghost and just trying to act a little bit more like her male colleagues just to fly under the radar and not have that kind of friction and hassle that I think it's very clear so many women face, even in the modern era. I think what's really interesting is that we've recently had these instances, Elizabeth Holmes being one, but Anna Sorokin, uh, a.k.a. Delvey, is another example of someone who tried to use that actually almost as a weapon. Mm -hmm. I think that these people are in one way highlighting the hypocrisy of male culture, but in the other respect degrading the value that women can bring to the conversation. And I have known many, many, many fantastic women who are leaders who understand how to play to their strengths as well. I agree. I honestly can say all the best bosses I've had have been women and women who embraced their feminine qualities, whatever that might mean to them, in more healthy ways than the examples you just listed. That said, I got to call you out on your own hypocrisy. You might be throwing Anna Delvey under the bus, but every time you go out to a bar, you are complaining that it's not VIP enough for you. But then again, I've never been to a place that was VIP enough for me. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. 
I think that's got to be something that uh, Margaret Atwood is exploring with the ants in terms of their place in this society of Gilead. And so I just think it's such a fascinating construct. And even though I think the most brutal examples we see of violence are precipitated by the ants, be it in the uh, the handmaid's training all the way up to the salvaging that we see. Right. They might be the most dark characters written in this, but I still have sympathy for them because I really feel like the vast majority of them, in their own twisted mind, think that they're protecting women. Well, I want to come back to the salvaging here in a moment, but I think Margaret Atwood understands very deeply what she is doing here. Mm-hmm. So jumping ahead to the ending of this novel, which is in many ways not an ending. Uh, right. it is, it's kind of its own thing. It is a lecture that is being given by a preeminent researcher who is working in the field of Gilead and understanding what happened with it as a society. And what we find out is that everything that happened in this book was essentially transcripts of a series of audio recordings that someone made, presumably trying to flee the country. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know practically much of anything. And even the veracity of these recordings is somewhat in question. And we're almost told that this might be a somewhat unreliable narrator. Yeah. So I think there, there's tons of stuff going on there that's fascinating. But in the context of learning about the provenance of the story itself, that we also get to hear this researcher's insights into what was going on in Gillian society. And specifically, the researcher points out that one of the strengths of the Gilead society and its ability to be resilient and durable, you know, for presumably a long period of time, was the fact that they gave certain sets of women very masculine roles Mm -hmm. in society and created hierarchies that were similar to those that men would create amongst themselves. And this is very much about the odds. Yeah. So I think what Margaret Atwood is doing here is nothing short of genius. That she is making a comment about the very nature of masculinity and sort of the skeletons in the closet of men and sort of the demons, perhaps, that have haunted male society for so long by showing it to us in a non-male form. And I think that is just so fascinating. It really is. I mean, it's, like you said, we could talk about this for 15 episodes because there's so much that this novel plums into human nature. I just enjoy how much you like this ending because in my mind, uh, you has been established over the year and a half of Literary Guys, Uh, You are a very analytical person. You're an executive in the tech industry. And I just imagine that you now wish all literary fiction ended with a top researcher (laughs) giving a lecture. (laughs) About the book that you just read. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, it's a fascinating way to end it. I mean, the one thing we do know is that Gilead doesn't last forever. Right. It eventually does fall. But we don't ever know what happens to Offred when we last see her. She could be going off with the eyes to be sent to the colonies or worse. She could be with members of the resistance who are going to free her. And it is so ambiguous. And you feel that tension that that human must have had in that moment as she's getting into that van in that very last chapter. She doesn't know and we don't know. And that's what we talked about in the last episode is great writing, is letting the reader exist in that not knowing 
And I think that that really forms a lot of emotion and direct attachment to a quality narrative. So, yeah, can't say enough about the ending. And we know that someone recorded those tapes. Yes. That this is based upon. She must have gotten somewhere. True. Or the entire story is fictional. And the handmaids were actually very content and happy. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> that you could imagine someone writing a story like that or leaving mm-hmm. it in the form of audio recordings to prove a point. And we just don't know. Like, I think Margaret Atwood does something really genius here, which is to say that all stories are very much about the people who tell them. And whether or not this is a fully accurate depiction, whether or not this is something that even happened in this worldview, or just the way that someone wanted to to give us an impression of what it was like to be a handmaid, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. That this is a historical view into a society that never existed. And that is really amazing. Yeah, I agree. One of the things I think we could talk about, too, let's touch on the salvaging, but we've also got kind of these back-to-back scenes. We talked about Alfred having uh, intimate relations with Commander Fred at Jezebel's. Then she kind of goes right back to the estate and has relations with Nick as sanctioned by Serena Joy in the hopes that she mm-hmm. will become pregnant, uh, assuming Commander Fred might himself be sterile. She'll become pregnant through Nick, and Serena Joy can finally have her child and elevate her status in society. And it's interesting to me that Margaret Atwood is showing us a society wherein women have no rights, but still have some power when it comes to sex. Because all men in Offred's world want something from her, being they, if they're the guardians at checkpoints checking her out, if it's the commander wanting more intimacy, if it's Nick just wanting to elevate his status as a male by even being with a woman. It's interesting to me that Margaret Atwood has kind of singled that out as something that women have historically always had over men. You know, historically we know the Peloponnesian War was allegedly ended by women refusing to have sex with their husbands on both sides until they all just stopped fighting each other. I find that a very interesting condemnation of masculine identity in that at the end of the day, we're so sex-driven that if you take sex away from us, we can kind of be reasoned with. One of the last kind of, again, most impactful scenes in the novels right at the end there with the salvaging. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Where we actually see perhaps for the first and only time a truly heroic male character who in the context of the salvaging is introduced as a serial rapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and is kind of thrown to the handmaids as a way for them to feel empowerment, like they're doing something to protect society. But we learn, based on uh, off Glenn's actions, that mm-hmm. this is actually a resistance fighter. This man is a hero. This man, despite the fact that Gilead is propping up men as the sole beneficiaries of the society, has chosen to fight against the wrongs that he sees. And I remember reading that novel for the first time and thinking a lot about that guy who only gets a few sentences in the course of the novel, but who clearly must have been somebody who was exhibiting some of the better traits of masculinity that we should probably honestly focus a little bit more on this podcast. Well, we picked the wrong book for that. (laughs) What was your take on that guy? Do you think that that was accurate, that we were getting the real picture, or was he just what the ant said he was, just some serial rapists who needed to be put to death. I don't believe the answer on this one. I think the story is too clear-cut that we see so often in societies and in politics where people so clearly vilify people and give them an enemy. Right. That 
So often that's not true. So often it is an artifice and a catalyst for people to somehow feel more together. Oh, we did that together. We, you know, we took down that enemy. We, we were superior. And here is someone who hasn't slept in days, has been beaten, and is then thrown to this group of women to be, you know, essentially kicked and punched to death right in front of them. You know, this is a way of them exercising power. Right. And it's also really interesting. They're all very hesitant to take a human life until he starts pleading his innocence and pleading Mm -hmm, for his life. mm -hmm. And that almost sets them off. Of course, of Glenn kind of kicks him in the head first because she recognizes him as a fellow member of the Mayday resistance and uh, wants to at least knock him unconscious before the worst is put upon him. But man, we see this time and time again where authoritarian dictatorships give people an easy villain to hate. So true. And man, it's tough not to to read The Handmaid's Tale and think about, you know, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now and, Mm -hmm. and kind of draw some of those same parallels. And so that I think to me, that male character continues to stick out for me because it's almost a cipher for a lot of the tragedy that we see in this world and a lot of the confusion that we have as people just trying to navigate it. Yeah. Well, as we try and navigate this world, we need to get paid. <laughs> we do. We do, my friend. We got a little copy here that I'll read that will uh, keep the lights on for one more day. I mean, because these blessed be the fruit cocktails that Crystal keeps making are not paying for themselves. They are not cheap. I will say that. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Looking to rid yourself of any pesky resistance fighters, gender traitors, unwomen, or other sinners? Come on down to the salvaging at Fenway Park, where he who is without sin is encouraged to throw the first stone. Uh, Weirdly enough, that is an ad placed by the Boston Red Sox. And as one who's been to Boston many times, I am not surprised by that at all. Is that the location where we are led to believe this occurs? Or? There, there's enough hints within the novel that the Hulu series actually places it in Boston. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, definitely oh. it's Boston. Yeah, okay. But I'm saying about Fenway. Yeah, I think I think the salvaging happens at Fenway. I mean, you got something called the Green Monster. You're not going to hold the salvaging there? Come on now. All right. Well, I'm in shock. We're at the end of talking about this book. We made it through four episodes and... As we've said a few times here, I think we've barely scratched the surface of this. To the men who are listening to this, read this book. I I hope you did before you listened to this, but for a novel that is on the surface, strictly about women, I think we've established here that that is not the case. That Margaret Atwood has created a male society here that is as nuanced and, frankly, Mm off-putting than pretty much any I've read recently. And she does it with a panache that makes it feel almost effortless. I just cannot give enough praise to this particular novel. And for the women who are listening, we certainly encourage you to read the book too, but you don't have to because I suspect you've probably lived this reality at one time in your life. I think that's what Margaret Atwood's kind of tackling with this is, yeah, it's this extreme version of all the bad things in her society, but I do feel like having talked to many women in my life that they they have felt similar to this and can relate to this maybe on a deeper level than perhaps we can and that just means we need to do better and we need to keep addressing these things and making sure that gilead never happens at least in our lifetime well i think that is a good goal anyhow what's coming up next month 
in spirit of the pandemic, which we are fingers crossed, hopefully seeing an end to, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, we're going to be reading one of the first pandemic novels, Andromeda Strain, by Jurassic Park author Michael Crichton. Now, uh, you and I both read this in, I think I read it in high school, you, probably about the same time for you. Yeah, yeah, I think it was around then. I remember loving it. I also remember devouring it in like a day. So it's going to be interesting going back to it and seeing if there's enough material there to even divine three episodes, four episodes out of. I'm not sure. Well, I know we got to do at least one episode on this asinine idea of the odd man hypothesis. See, I don't remember this. We were talking about this before we went live on the mics after our third Blessed Be the Fruit. And I don't recall that there was a graph... You said there's a graph in Andromeda Strain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's many graphs. We're going to get to that oh, okay. in in the next month's episodes. But we'll see what we can get out of this novel. It's entertaining. If and if we else. if we can't ring enough out of it, hey, we might just call an audible and pick up the Sphere or Jurassic Park or Terminal Man or any of the other great Michael Crichton novels from my youth. Which might turn out to be not that great in retrospect. I am not sure. We shall see. Yeah. Anyhow, until that time, thank you for listening. Thanks, as always, to the Stardust Lounge. If you haven't already, please make sure to leave us a review. Every month we keep getting new listeners because they are finding us because folks like yourselves have helped us promote Literary Guys. And we cannot be more thankful about that. So until next time, this has been Literary Guys Under His Eye.